0: to see you and to be with you. Um, I feel like I'm doing something which isn't often the case at Kirkpatrick Memorial, and that's joining in in a series that other people have started for me. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, Sam and last week Richard got us started with this uh, study in First Timothy. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've really loved the, the way in which they've led those last couple of weeks. So Uh, I felt quite under pressure, really, um, since we started, um, knowing that I would have to join in and play my part in this series with them, but uh, I'll rely on on God for his help to do that here today. Um, We're going to do a little bit of interactive work uh, a little bit later in our service, so be ready for that. Uh, When that time comes, I'll invite you to to move uh, into groups of round about five or or so people, so one or two of you might have to move. The way I think this works best is um, if if anybody isn't, uh, you know, not that comfortable moving, maybe other people who are more comfortable jumping up on their feet and moving uh, would adjust for that. In my experience, it's usually easier to go and sit in front of uh, maybe older people who would find it hard to, to turn for a long time in conversation, so uh, you'll you'll move uh, in a few moments and you'll be mindful of those things. Let me remind you briefly of what we've learned in these first couple of weeks together from 1 Timothy. A couple of weeks ago, Sam led us as we just tried to look at the whole book. uh, We listened to the whole book read to us and then we looked for some major themes uh, as we tried to get an overview of the book. Um, He very helpfully pointed us to uh, what what seems like a crucial passage in the middle of the book where uh, Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy is made clear. So that's chapter 3, verse 14. Let me see if I can click this on. I'm not having any joy here. If we, if we move that on. Thank you, uh, Peter. Chapter 3, verse 14 Paul says, I'm writing these instructions so that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So we thought about what it meant to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, and we recognised that uh, Paul wants the Ephesian church to demonstrate the truth of the gospel for a watching world. Last week, Richard guided us as we started to look in a bit more detail at chapter 1, and we noticed there that Paul wanted Timothy to challenge some of the false teaching that had been going on in Ephesus, and we identified the false teaching, and we noticed three main themes. Um, Next slide. Yeah, the false teaching was around these three areas, and we noticed too that Paul encouraged Timothy to teach in a way that undermined the false teaching, that corrected the false teaching. We'll see that here in slide four. So, to a church where some of the leaders were being elitist, Paul comes along and he says, well, not me, I'm the worst of sinners. In a church that was inward focused, Paul says that everything that Jesus did in him was as an example for others to see, uh, those who would believe in Jesus. And a church that was into a sort of a super-spirituality, a higher form of godliness, Uh, Paul basically says, no, everything is based not on our godliness, but on on the gospel of God's grace. So this evening, we're going to move further into Paul's letter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Let me uh, read that passage for you just now, just those seven verses. Flick them open if you don't already have them. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 on page 1192. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Before we look in detail at tonight's passage, let me just show you how it fits into the overall structure of the letter. So, first, Timothy has what's called a chiastic structure. That is, it moves from a beginning towards its center and then back away from the center in a way where it repeats the themes and the topics that have already been raised. So, this chiastic Form of writing quite common in the Bible. And writers use it to emphasize um, their to emphasize certain points and to give clarity to their arguments. So let me show you the chiastic structure of 1 Timothy. That's the next slide Peter. If you can see it there it moves uh, from part one to um, sorry part one to part two and then to part three which becomes the, the center of the whole letter, and then part four mirrors part two, and part five mirrors part one. So tonight as we come to the opening part of chapter two, we're moving into the second major section of the letter, and Paul's telling Timothy how you should go about restoring the life of this church family that's been, been undermined by false teaching, In a moment, we'll come to tonight's passage, but just before we do, I wanted to show you that even part two here can be split into three parts, and that's what we're doing in our preaching series. So the next slide shows that that part two can be split into three parts. First of all, our passage tonight, which is all about being centered in the gospel, then a passage that we'll look at uh, in the future Uh, where it's all about godly members in the church, and then uh, a passage further on which talks about godly leaders. Uh, So if you're aware of that, you'll see how the argument flows. If you look at the end of chapter 1, you'll see that Paul uses a metaphor there of shipwreck. He talks about people who have shipwrecked their faith. So what's happening here in in this section 2 is that Paul's inviting Timothy to act like a a pilot to the good ship Ephesus. And he wants to help avoid her shipwreck. So the first thing that needs to happen is that the ship needs to be steered away from the rocks where it would be wrecked into deeper waters of the gospel. The second thing that needs to happen is that the crew uh, and its behavior needs to be dealt with. And the third thing that needs to happen is that two of the officers who have been dismissed, and they're the ones who were talked about at the end of chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, there's guidance needed if we're to appoint new leaders in their place. And that's what we'll come to in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Right, let's get stuck into tonight's passage. Um, If we pop up the next slide, there's a question there. I want you to have a look at the passage and just look for repetition. This is a really important principle when you're dealing with any Bible passage. If there's a lot of repetition of a particular idea or theme, you've got to see what it is as you try to interpret it. So take two or three minutes. Folks, this might be the moment to move. Um, I would like you in groups of about five. Um, So move so that you're in groups of about five. Turn and chat with each other. And see if you can find some repetition in chapter two, verses one to seven. Just, I'm only going to give you three minutes on that, so you need to move pretty fast. Uh, no hanging about tonight. Just get stuck in and and go for it. Okay, we're going to send Richard out with the handheld mic to find uh, some answers. What 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 repetition do you see there? And what what theme do you think? It, it maybe highlights in these seven verses. Have a go. We're trying to find the answer together. So we're all together in this. It's not competitive. It's um, Hands up if you have an answer for Richard. A first stab. Verse four seems to me to be the key. Um, God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. And then earlier on we had praying for uh, interceding Uh, on behalf of others, and the the, the reason is that they may come to faith. And then in verse 7, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles to bring this message about faith and truth. Desmond, you've probably just mucked up my whole thing here because you've uh, told all the answers um, in one. Well done. The theme is that the use of all do you see the number of repetitions in seven verses of the ideas of every person or all people? It comes in, in slightly different words, but the idea is just repeated. Peter, if we fire up that next slide, I want to show you four different ways in which Peter, or sorry, Paul is talking about all people. He's asking us to pray for all, and that uh, comes through in the first couple of verses. God wants that all people will be saved. Christ has died, we're told, as a ransom for all. And slightly more implied, but very much there, preaching to all, including the nations and the Gentiles, is what we should be all about. I want you to take a moment to think. Um, We we got, got there very well How would this teaching challenge the false teaching that we were looking at on the screen a moment ago? I'll ask for the next slide there. Peter, how does Paul's teaching in these verses then challenge the the false teaching that um, Paul's already highlighted for us uh, in chapter 1 and in the tail end of chapter 6? Have a chat about that for two or three minutes just to see you know we're always looking to see how Paul is, how Paul wants to see Timothy correct this church in the ways in which it's going off the rails. So have a have a chat about that, and we'll take some feedback. Okay, folks, let's. Um, we'll take these one at a time. How does uh, the teaching of verses one to seven uh, challenge the elitism that there is in the church in Ephesus? Anyone? Uh, the, the idea of all strikes against elitism in itself, just the, the philosophy of everyone. We're all in it together and actually meaning it, unlike David Cameron. Thank you. Yeah, so you can't you can't say the the gospel's only for some or only for important people, whenever Paul says so clearly here that it's it's for all. Um, what about the inward focus? what do these verses say about a church that has an inward focus? What's the challenge to that kind of a church? Uh, he's saying that God wants all people to be saved, so it's not just about the church being a little club for insiders. God cares about people outside the church as well. And and Paul himself, in verse 7, talks about where he's going to go with the gospel, um, that he's planning to share it with uh, the Gentiles, uh, you know, he's planning to go a long way with it. What, what about uh, maybe a slightly more difficult one to to find in this passage? But but I think it might be there. How does this passage uh, challenge the idea of a, a higher godliness or a, a church that was about some people being more spiritual than others? What kind of a spirituality is Paul uh, looking for? Anybody? see if I can find that an allusion to that. And we talked about verse 2, um, the call to live in holiness and godliness and peaceful quiet lives, which sort of counteract a showy, super spirituality that maybe was going on. Absolutely. It's a very... The godliness that we're looking for is, is peaceful and quiet. It's not dramatic, eye-catching it's not front and center stage, it's every day. Uh, thank you. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these four, uh, four all's that we found in, in the text, so we'll, we'll take a moment, uh, I'll just lead us in our thinking through them. So the first one, the, the next slide there, prayer for all, just follow the text with me and we'll think about some of this stuff together. The word urge that Paul uses here, he's used it already in chapter 1, verse 3. He urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus. Now he's urging that prayer needs to be happening in the church. Prayer needs to be top of the church's agenda. Notice what he says about how the church should pray. Um, He uses different words there. Prayers, requests, intercessions, thanksgivings should be made for everyone. If you read up on these, uh, the commentators mostly end up saying that, okay, you could try to see these as as different things, but actually, probably better to understand that Paul's just saying there are lots of different ways to pray. And if you think about it, if we're going to pray for all people, think of the very large variety of people that you know in your life. Your, in your family, in your workplace, your neighbours, you'll be praying different kinds of prayers for all those people. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to be doing. He wants our prayer to be a rich and a varied thing. Notice what Paul says about who the church should be praying for. At first glance, it looks like um, it's something about leaders. Kings and all those in authority. In verse 2, it sort of jumps out at you. But in verse 1, he said, prayer should be made for everyone. And if you jump down to verse 3, you'll see that he says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved. All men to be saved. Pray for everyone because he wants all men to be saved. So we pray for everyone. That's really the focus. And the bit about uh, the leaders is a slight digression or elaboration. This isn't just prayer for leaders. This is prayer for everyone. And he chooses. If he's not talking just about leadership, why does Paul choose to mention it and draw attention to leadership? Maybe it's because if you're a Christian in Ephesus under Nero or whoever happened to be the emperor at the time. You need a special encouragement to believe that it's worth praying for a guy like that. Or maybe maybe it was more at a local level. If you're in a, a city full of pagan, uh, pagan deities, the leaders worshipping at these shrines, maybe it takes... It takes just a bit of something to gee you up to think, goodness, these guys could and should be prayed for. So Paul challenges the idea that you can't pray for Nero or Ephesian pagan leaders. He wants Christians to pray for the king and all those in authority. There's no one on earth who doesn't finally sit under God's authority. He says, pray to the king of kings, for your king whoever that king is and the the way in which we should pray Paul suggests is that leaders will govern in such a way that God's people can can live out their purpose in the world on Friday night I finally got to see Andrew Marr's profile of Angela Merkel uh, which had gone out I think a week before the the wonders of iPlayer Germany's first ever female Chancellor it was fascinating for for me at least, I I don't know if it would be of any interest to you, to hear how the daughter of a Lutheran pastor who made her way through a communist party uh, as a young woman growing up in East Germany uh, finally grew to become the most powerful woman in the world do you pray for her much? The most powerful woman in the world. We could. Paul says we should. Let's pray for our leaders. Next slide, there, Peter, please. The second of Paul's alls, he's talking here about how God wants all to be saved. Notice that Paul uses interesting language here. He calls God our Saviour. I think we talk about Jesus as the Saviour, don't we? Mostly. But here he's choosing to talk about God and and he's specifically choosing to refer to him as Saviour. You see, God loves people and he wants them to be saved. And whenever we pray for our friends and our family and our colleagues and our neighbors, then we are entering very much into the heart of God. We're right in the, the zone with God where God, His own heart is. Paul goes on to explain how it is that people are, are saved. And he says it's by coming to a knowledge of the truth. Folks, this is why it's important that the church... Never give up on preaching the gospel. Sharing the truth, uh, the knowledge by which men and women are saved. And this is also why the church needs to be dead set against false teaching. Anything that stands against or jeopardizes or dilutes the truth of the gospel. That prevents people from knowing the truth by which they must be saved. God wants all people to be saved. We said a moment ago that the church in Ephesus was guilty of elitism. Some sort of a superior attitude that some in the church had that allowed them to look down or discount others. I want us to think about this for a second. Peter, if you pop up the next slide there, I have a question for you in your groups. Sometimes we act as though there are people whom God doesn't want to see saved, people to whom we hesitate to reach out. Can you think of any such people or groups? Three minutes, and we'll hear from you. Okay, Peter... Um, sorry, Pe- not, not Peter, Richard. Richard's ready with the, the microphone here and ready for your answers. What people have we, at points in our journey, or maybe just now, hesitated to reach out to with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, we had a few answers in our group. Uh, for me, it's just people I don't like. I think probably God thinks similarly to me, probably, so don't have to worry too much about that. Uh, somebody thought sex, sex offenders and somebody thought murderers so those are the people that we wouldn't be making too much effort Stephen I missed your first one no I, I said uh, just people we don't like you know we sort of think we don't like them I think that's an interesting God, God one God may well be and covers a a of us, sins, so that might yeah. be one and pedophiles and murderers were the other ones we thought yeah. where we might act as if God's not so concerned about them. Yeah. Thank you. We know that about our modern culture, don't we? The that it vilifies, it finds the worst people and vilifies them to to vindicate the rest of us in the masses. We're not sinful people is the story in Great Britain these days, but these guys are. Uh, don't don't expect me to reach out to them. Yeah, thank you. Who who else have we either historically or presently uh, failed to reach out to with the gospel. Um, we thought possibly people who would construct a very clever anti-Christian argument, um, and in my context maybe work colleagues that would come into, um, and the other group we sort of thought was possibly people with a Muslim background, because we sort of maybe felt they might be so woke. Entrenched in their culture and faith, that they wouldn't, or we would sort of almost believe they wouldn't be receptive to God's word. Thanks, L. J. Yeah, so there's the there's the new atheist, the person who's very clear in their secular atheistic views, and there's people who already have another religion. We might say, well, that's hands off. We can't talk to that person about Jesus because they're a a Muslim or a yeah. Thank you. Any others, quickly? Yeah, Jenny. We, we talked about atheists and, and all those um, you know, murdering types of people, but we probably thought the basic difficulty is with our own neighbours and also people who feel they are so self-reliant because they're affluent. I feel the hardest person to reach is someone who's got all the material wealth and they feel they have it all. And they don't feel that need. It's very hard to reach those people. Thank you, Jenny. That's a, a very useful comment for at least some of this area in which we live. If we don't understand that, we live among a very self made and self reliant community here. I, I don't want to generalise. Of course, there are all sorts here, but, but that's certainly a reality here in this area of East Belfast. I wondered about Roman Catholics historically. When Presbyterians came to Ireland, I don't think it ever dawned on them that they should be sharing Christ with their Catholic Irish neighbours. It seemed mostly about denouncing the errors of Roman faith rather than sharing Jesus. Folks, we have found, uh, even just in a few minutes, we've found many ways in which elitism that prevents us from sharing the gospel still lives on. But the truth is God wants all to be saved. Let's move on to the third of those alls. It's the next slide, Uh, Peter. Christ died as a ransom for all, we're told in verses 5 and 6. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time. Paul starts by asserting that there's only one God, and for us that doesn't raise too many eyebrows. We're comfortable with that, but not in Ephesus. Uh, That's not normal thinking there by any stretch. He asserts that there's only one God and that there's only one way to come to the one God. And this gulf between God and man is bridged by the man who was god so if you look carefully at the passage paul refers to jesus often in many different ways but here he refers to him as the man jesus christ wants to stress his uh, humanity at this point because he's stressing that jesus is a mediator between humans and the living god I think Paul's probably echoing Jesus' words here somewhere where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the one mediator between God and man. What is it that Jesus did that makes it possible for him to to bring us to God? The answer lies in the cross, and Paul's already talked about that in chapter 1. He told us there in verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When he died on the cross, we're being told here, he gave himself as a ransom payment on behalf or in place of all people. In other words, Jesus pays the ransom price in his death instead of us so that we might be delivered Theologians are brilliant at putting big words on on important ideas. So, you might have heard talk of the substitutionary atonement. That's what we're talking about here. And whether you are comfortable with that kind of theological language or not, this remains a central truth in Orthodox Christian belief. Some people will tell you that there's more to the cross than the substitutionary atonement that Jesus achieved there. I believe they're right. I believe even more was achieved in the cross than the substitutionary atonement. But those who tell you that there is less, I'd encourage you not to take their view on board too quickly. The substitutionary atonement is a central part of biblical faith. Notice what Paul says about the ransom that Jesus paid when he gave his life. He says that he gave himself as a ransom for all men. I don't have time this evening because twice we've seen this use of all men. God wants all men to be saved. Jesus has given himself as a ransom for all men. Although it's true that God wants all to be saved and Jesus has given himself for all men, it's also starkly true that not all people will benefit from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's a mystery here and Paul doesn't address it. And the reason he doesn't address it is because that's not his theme at the moment. His theme at the moment, if you remember, is to stress the stress the breadth of God's salvation in a place where elitism and a narrowing of of, of the gospel focus has crept into the church in Ephesus. In this context, Paul wants to stress the importance of going out into the world with a free offer of the gospel. Peter, one last slide on all of this. Preaching to all. Each part of this passage, I hope you can see it, is carefully linked uh, to the part that's gone before. And this message that we've just been thinking about, that Christ died as a ransom for all, that needs to go out to all. And so Paul tells us in verse 7, for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Simply put, Paul is committed to doing what God commissioned him to do. If you read the passage of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, shortly after the account of his conversion, we have the Lord speaking to a guy called Ananias, who's afraid of going to meet with Paul. And God says to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. That word Gentiles, by the way, it can be translated as the nations. It's everyone beyond Israel. It's all. And Paul says that this message isn't going to be preached to just a few. It's not going to be preached to just the Jews. It's going to be for all. It's for the entire world. Look at this slide on the screen just now. It's a good summary of Paul's teaching in our passage this evening. He says that we should pray for all because God our Savior wants all to be saved and because Christ died as a ransom for all and so we should see to it that this message is preached to all. Two of those four points are particularly to do with God and what he has done. And I'm sure it's very evident to you which two they are. That leaves the other two points for us. These are what we can do and what we must do. Peter, the last slide. We're to pray and to preach. That's the kind of church we need to be. A church that prays for all people, that when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, they'll come to a knowledge of Him. Folks, we've had some preaching here today. Sam shared from 1 Peter this morning, I've been uh, preaching from 1 Timothy this evening. We want to continue to be a, a preaching church. But we want to be a praying church too, don't we? We want to pray in our homes and in our discipleship groups and in our prayer gatherings and in our church services and in our youth ministries and in our elders' meetings. We want to pray for all the people whom God brings across our path our co workers and our neighbors. And her friends and her family. We want to pray for them that as they hear the gospel, God will open their blind eyes and that they'll come to a knowledge of the truth about Jesus. Folks, we want to be a church that teaches, preaches, but we also want to be a church that prays. Amen.